Hi, folks. This is Ron Stefanski. Welcome to another episode of Disrupt Ed, where we talk to the determined and the do-gooders out there who are helping us to make sense of the massive disruption that's going on in the world of education and learning, in the world of work. And I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Caesar, who's in the house. Hello, hello, hello. And today we have a special guest that's going to blow your minds about the expansiveness of where this is all taking us. So we have with us today the CEO and Executive Director of Automation Alley, Tom Kelly. He joins us. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Caesar. Hey, Ron. Welcome, Tom. Um, and so we're excited to talk to you. We had an opportunity to talk to um, one of your colleagues, your chief operating officer recently, and he kind of blew our minds because he took a lot of things that uh, a lot of our viewing audience doesn't yeah. completely understand. Isn't Everything's coming and in. And I'm one of them. I'm one of <laughs> Me them. Me too. So we, got a really great, so we got a really great lesson in um, Industry 4.0 from Pavan Muzumdar, your uh, COO. Yeah. And so, but we want to start, you know, so one of the things we want to he really is. And it was really a wonderful episode. If you haven't heard it, you can go back to our episode with Pavan. It's really, really uh, fascinating. And so today, Tom, we're going to start out with you. And we're going to have a little bit of a focus on you because you've had an interesting journey here. And so um, you didn't automatically wake up, as Caesar said one day, and decide you're going to be the ruler of the roost in technology and industry 4.0. So uh, we first want to hear you know, all of our disruptors are from different places. They're from uh, they're from the government. They're from, you know, we had the mayor of Dayton in here recently. We've had uh, workforce executives on the show and people from the K-12 sector, all of whom are helping our audience, our listening and viewing audience. How do you sort through the disruption that's coming our way and is is like a tsunami? And how do we stay in front of it to the best of our abilities? So how did you, yeah, so Tom, what do you think most influenced you, not only to be a disruptor and someone who can communicate about these massive trends going on right now in the world of work, in the world of learning, but how did you get in front of it so that you could help influence others and influence an organization to grow and expand when your stakeholders aren't inside the building? Your stakeholders are in state government and in county government and across the community. So help us understand how you became someone who can get it done. Well, it's a, it's, it's a tough question because I never focus on that. <laughs> I just get stuff done, I guess. I don't know. But, but I, 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 I think it comes from a place my whole career has been built around. And I, I kind of lucked into this start. I came out of school as an electrical engineer, but I went into sales engineering, selling robotics into manufacturing. And manufacturing from, from the 80s through the 90s, we were, we were going gangbusters in the U.S. In manufacturing and I and what happened was China happened and China came on board and just decimated manufacturing and it became the low-cost country and at the same time over you know if we go forward far enough over 20 years Mexico also came on board and we had to we had to adjust and we lost our manufacturing grace and we had to become this uh, competitors of low cost. And, you know, low cost is a race to the bottom. And it really irritated me. And it sort of became my mission, which was to help create competitive advantage for manufacturing in the U.S. Because I had always believed, and now it's empirically evident, 
that the middle class uh, was built by manufacturing. The wealth of the middle class came from manufacturing. And when that went away, you see that the wealth in the middle class is stagnating. And, and we're having all these social ills because the middle class is, is stagnating. There are no longer paths, the good paying jobs uh, for people that, that uh, don't have four year degrees, let's say. And manufacturing is a great path to that. And we need to recognize in America that if you make stuff, prosperity follows. If you don't make stuff, the rich get richer because the service economy allows the knowledge to continue to, to, to grow. But we have to be a society for all people to have, have an opportunity to be prosperous. And manufacturing is one path to that that is really, really fascinating to me and, and what gets me up every day. Well, you know, that's a fascinating observation because we're, we're in Detroit. We're in what I would describe as the home of mobility, mobility 1.0, when the middle class became upwardly mobile and Detroit put the world on wheels. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about that context where it was really the middle class through manufacturing that that created both physical mobility, but also upward we mobility. We were the five that, that's, day wage, so what? right? Henry Ford created right, the five dollar right. day wage because that's he could right. afford we it. talked about that, yeah. So what... So, so Tom, so you mentioned that China happened, Mexico happened, also the Japanese. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that was the seventies. Sure. Yeah. Right, right. So, so just to, as a background, so I did some training with GM, uh, I training for them on just in time delivery. That whole system that they kind of borrowed from Japan, just to, as a background. But so, Tom, but what happened? So you, you talked about Japan happened, you know, China happened, Mexico happened. So what happened here to flip that? I mean, I, I, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. So you're asking, like, what happened to cause us to lose our way? Or what are we doing Why are now we on top? Capture? Why are we in a better position now? Yeah. I mean, from what you were saying, we're in a better position now, yes. right? So, so here's what happened. Industry 4.0 happened, which is a collection of technologies around manufacturing and the digitization of everything. And from the 70s on, this whole generational arc, manufacturing became a capital intensive business that really rewarded efficiency. And so that became, how do I lean out my, my manufacturing? How do I hollow out my good paying jobs? How do I outsource all that I have to low-cost countries? Because the name of the game is meaning. And what we're finding with Industry 4.0 is as everything digitizes. The cost of manufacturing is going to come way down. And the ability to create value around manufacturing is going to go way up. And just take 3D printing as an example. If I invent something in and I'm able to print it digitally on a 3D printer. There's nothing else required. I don't need to build a huge capital intensive manufacturing to create that part. What I need is a democracy where there are thousands of people willing to make that part with me. That, that's really good because that's a really great. So, so has that, has that, where does that put us in the U.S. just in terms of who's leading this effort? Are we in the middle, on top? I mean, from a global perspective, where, where are we positioned in this 
4.0 piece. So technically, we're positioned top of the heap. We are great innovators, and we are in, we are driving 3D printing. Culturally, we're at the bottom of the heap, along with everybody else who has made great wealth around manufacturing, right? So, so China's trying to figure it out, Mexico's trying to figure it out, Germany's trying to figure it out, South Korea's trying to figure it out. But what I would posit is all of us are culturally behind the eight ball, because if I was a country that didn't have all this emotional baggage around manufacturing, I would be investing huge sums in digitizing manufacturing and teaching my people how to do 3D printing because I can get 3D printers everywhere. I can have people all throughout Africa with 3D printers who has never been good at manufacturing and all of a sudden become a manufacturing powerhouse. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, totally. That is so cool. And that's where the world is going. So, Tom, how do you use the platform of Automation Alley to help industry see that? Because um, at the turn of the last decade, uh, Detroit and Michigan's economy was underwater. Now it's making a huge comeback um, and, and manufacturing's making great strides. And one of the things that I think they're making great strides in doing is attracting businesses to this region that are not completely automotive centered, that they're, they're manufacturers that take advantage of skilled trades and things like that, but they're not necessarily all focused on the automobile anymore. And so how does how, how is Automation Alley generating that kind of progress and bringing people into that conversation? Yeah, yeah, so, so what Automation Alley's mission is to change culture, right? We talk a lot about technology, but that's the, that's the false flag that we put out there. Technology is interesting and technology is how you affect the, the, the ability to be effective and efficient at small scales going forward. But what we really need to do is change culture, get people to recognize that I am not in manufacturing for manufacturing's sake. I'm in manufacturing because we make stuff that satisfy needs that consumers and other businesses need and want, right? And once we get to that point, then the technology becomes the enabler that allows these, these manufacturers that exist in Michigan to participate in this next change that is occurring. You know, every industrial revolution we've had, and that's really what Industry 4.0 stands for. It stands for the fourth industrial revolution. The, the people that were successful in the previous revolution usually do not survive the change. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah, and they're culturally kind of stuck. You know, hey Tom, you one of the things, Tom, that that you you uh, question you kind of perked my interest in when you talk about the change of culture again. So, and and you just kind of hit on it a little bit. So, but the other part of this is preparing not just the change of culture, but preparing that population and their skill development. You know, so yeah, you got you know 4.0 manufacturing 4.0, but but the population hasn't caught up. You know, the, the programs, the, the training, the, the knowledge base, you know, but only for a small group of people, you know. And so it's part of your mission, not only to change culture, but to get that up to speed as well. You know, Tom, before you answer that, I'm sorry, before you answer that question, you know, one of the things that that occurs to me from Caesar's question is the Economic Outlook Summit that you hosted in January here for uh, the region. And what you talk, you know, what we heard about from the economists and from you and from uh, the international community was, in effect, that this renaissance and this uh, this advancement uh, is leaving some people behind. 
and it's created what what people are calling the great resignation. So four million people have left the workforce. And what I was struck by is that in your pre-COVID economic outlook, the number one gating factor for business growth was identified as talent. And then this most recent return to a gathering of the economic outlook uh, audience, they were moving from a point where they said, you know, it's hard to find really good talent. And now they're saying it's hard to find anyone. They're having a hard time getting people to show up for interviews. So maybe you can help contextualize are people not prepared and so they're just opting out? Are they not finding a connection between the jobs that are available and they're and, and they're no longer ready for? How do we help sort that out with people? No, I, you know, I, to, to, to answer both your questions, the manufacturers today, and that tends to be my bailiwick, but occurring in all industries, industries built business models around technology as it existed over the last 20 years. And so you, you require lots of education to understand and digest that technology. And that's the skills gap that we talk about. Well, wake up, everybody, because today technology is, is, is easy to understand. If you take a person that says, well, I don't know how to run a CNC machine, but I can navigate a cell phone and play all kinds of video games and I can do everything. I can do something really complex but I can shame on the manufacturers for not getting together and saying, listen, we got to make manufacturing fun. We got to make it so that I can plop somebody in a VR environment and play a game around how to program a CNC machine and say, look, if you figure out how to make a key and that key in your virtual world can unlock this door, that door leads to $5,000 and a job with us. Kids would be playing that all day long. And, you know, it's the perception, too, Tom, you know, because I go back to your cultural thing. So we had a, pro had a I was on a project in Connecticut, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and it was advanced manufacturing. You know, children would start in 11th grade and partnership with Housatonic Co uh, Community College. You know, and the reason it was so difficult to get those 11th graders into that program because of their concept of manufacturing. They thought, oh, I don't want to get my hands all greasy and dirty. But the fact of the matter is they have lab coats on and stuff, right? So you're just changing the perception of what manufacturing is is like super important. Right. Caesar, you know, that's so true. There's a Detroit story that in my mind sort of clocked uh, the acceleration of a resurgence in manufacturing. And that story happened just as Detroit was pulling itself up from its boots. And that was the story of Shinola. And what's interesting about the story of Shinola in Detroit is that was an old hundred year old brand of shoe polish. And the gentleman who founded Fossil Watches came to Detroit to build high class, world class watches and believed that world class watches could be manufactured within the United States. And so he basically bought the brand name of Shinola to do that. And I had the opportunity recently to have a tour of their manufacturing plant. And it looks like a Franklin Lloyd Wright building. They have, they have wooden desks. They have people walking around in lab coats working on fine precision manufacturing. And they have built watches now that are the envy of the Swiss. And they're the envy of the world. Um, you can't walk into an airport wearing a Shinola where someone doesn't say, where'd you get that? You know, uh, and that's I, I think that's that you're right, Tom, that some of it is 
a marketing job that you're a marketing role that you're playing at Automation Alley to help people recognize that manufacturing has become cool. Yeah, well, and manufacturing has a lot of catching up to do because I, I don't want to say it's cool. I think manufacturing is still uncool. We we need to make it cool. And that's the change where they say the the consumer or the, the employee that I'm looking for has to adjust to what I want. And let me give you an example. So if you think about where the world is going with uh, these uh, uh, gig, the gig economy, where you have people that show up and they say, you know what, I, I don't want to be a taxi driver, but I'll drive for Uber all day long because it fits my lifestyle. It fits what I want. I want to check in when I want. I want to check out when I want. I'll make money when I want. Manufacturing needs to go down this path to say, how do I get people that know technology and know how to use it, how do I put them in a position where I give them, where I actually trust them and I build systems that allow them to work on their own? And that's where I think today we use CNC machines to subtract material from big hunks of metal to make parts. In the future, I'm gonna say, you know what? I'm gonna send you home with a 3D printer and your, the printer's going to print parts, and every time they come out, put them in a box for me and bring them back to me, and I will pay you for that, and you will be paid well for that. I know. Isn't that phenomenal? Hey, but Tom, Tom who, who's, who are some good examples, some, some kind of outliers that are already doing what you're talking about and kind of setting the pace? Yeah, well, you, you don't have to look any farther than, than what we're doing in the city of Detroit here in the metro area with Project Diamond, right? So we gave 300 printers to 300 manufacturers, never had printers before. And all of them are learning how to use them and learning how to be in a network with all the other printers and the innovation that's occurring. Once we gave them the permission to experiment, that's all we needed to do. They couldn't afford the printer on their own because know how to use it. Therefore, they didn't say, well, I can't buy it and figure it out later. Then my money's out. So we said, here, take this and go have fun with it. And they all did. And so what we're seeing is this is how you create an innovation. You, you allow them to experiment and to fail and not put their capital at risk. And that's, that's happening all over Metro Detroit now. And that's a seeding function. And what we hope will happen is more and more companies will understand that, you know what, I got to go down this path of digitization and I know how to do it because I have friends now that have done it and can be teachers. And I think mentorship is so important. Absolutely. We- You're singing my song for <laughs> sure, right? Hey, hey, Tom, so how would, so the role of, of Automation Alley is to bring together uh, manufacturers from around the area, the country, the world, and provide that, a model for them to move to move forward to provide that cultural model that they need to invest in to move forward. And do you work with those uh, man, those small manufacturers to help them set up that model to be able to do that? I think for our viewers and listeners, it's really important to understand that Automation Alley represents um, a huge community of small and medium manufacturers. So they're building this revolution. Uh, in small businesses that may not necessarily have the bandwidth. And Tom, how many, you've grown the membership of Automation Alley uh, explosively over the last couple of years. So could you put that into context for our audience? How many members are we actually talking about 
across the state that are members uh, working with Automation Alley? Well, when when I came in, you know, we've been around 1999 and we had 700 members and that's a that's a big number, 700 members. Today, though, five years later, we have 1500 members and a thousand of them are manufacturers. And but we have GM, Ford and Stellantis and Toyota are all members. But yeah, that if you take those thousand members of 920 of them are going to be small. Right. So we got some big players, but the vast majority of the people we help are small and they're the ones that need this help because they've been so beat up over the last generation that they think manufacturing only goes one way down and to the right and that they're just trying to hang on. And what we're here to say, is, look, we're in the middle of this revolution and this revolution is going to change manufacturing and all the people that that are driving you out of business they're going to go out of business and you can take what's theirs because the world is changing so rapidly. And I don't want us to miss that opportunity because it is occurring as we speak. Now, these things, though, culturally, the, the, this, this revolution generation play out. So we have to set the, set the hook, if you will, and, and teach everybody how to fish and get them going. But it's a tough slog because they can't see the reward right in front of them. We say, you got to do the work with us, but the reward is going to come. And, and that's, that's, the, that's what makes it so darn difficult. You know, change is hard. Human personal change is desperately hard. And so that's, that's very difficult. This is a thankless job. I don't recommend it. Right. Well, they got evangelists like you. So how would, for, for small business owners in Michigan, you know, in other states, but in Michigan in particular, I mean, if they wanted to really be a part of what you're doing, which I think is really dynamic, what would they do? Just how would they get in touch with? You, you know what? What we say is come to AutomationAlley.com. Sign up. It's free. It's free if you're small. Sign up and start learning. Just just read. Just read what we're asking you to read. And and every day there'll be new things to investigate. And there'll be, there'll be things about how AI Artificial intelligence works with small manufacturers and how 3D printing works and how new materials are coming on the scene that allow you to do how VR is going to play a role in how you do your hiring in the future. Let's stop with that one because Caesar and I recently had an opportunity uh, to investigate virtual reality um, in the most real sense. So uh, we've been talking and, and collaborating with a small company down in Austin, Texas called Interplay Learning. And they have been using simulations over the last 10 years to help people train in skilled trades. And then most recently, uh, they sprouted their wings, so to speak, and they infused virtual reality into their training programs. And so now they're training people on a skilled trade. So Tom, maybe is, I'm asking is, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the way to make manufacturing cool. I mean, how, what's your take on how virtual reality will be used in the coming years uh, to train and help upskill the workforce uh, that's required for these kinds of jobs you're talking about in manufacturing? Yeah, Caesar and Ron, that, that education is going to change dramatically. Now, the educational institutions may not change dramatically. Right. Yeah, they take a little time. <laughs> and, and, and anecdotally, you know, what I would say is I don't know how many times now when I needed to solve a problem, I would go watch a YouTube video 
And it would right. teach me how to how to fix my toilet, right. how to change this. Right. Pump, to right. And it's all out there. Well, so let me let me take three things in, in succession. So virtual reality is going to be a great tool to put somebody in an immersive environment and allow them to really feel and get that emotional experience without the risk of failure, without the risk of hurting. Right. And that's part of the expense. The reason why you have to create these long teach cycles is so they don't hurt themselves or others or cause scrap or whatever. So now you can be, hey, knock yourself out. Go learn on your own. Figure out how to do all this stuff, how to change everything out without affecting the machines. Then after they have the emotional response, which, which tends to retain the knowledge, then they'll have augmented reality where they'll have glasses or an iPad or something out in the field. If you're an electric electrician and you're putting in something, you know, the augmented reality will actually walk you through what you learned in VR, right? And it'll overlay on, a, on the real world. And so you won't have to retain any knowledge. 90% of education is about putting knowledge in your head that you can retain easily when it's needed. That's not going to no longer be necessary. Information is going to be ubiquitous, free, accessible all the time. Then the third stage, there's a third stage. So that's VR sets it up. AR is your augmented knowledge. And then if you get into trouble, you will have the ability to push a button and someone anywhere in the world will come on and say, I'm an expert in this. Let me walk through this with you. And then you'll have instant collaboration. All three of those things, you think, if those three things are possible today, what the heck are we teaching our children? They're not, we're not even teaching them for a world as it's going to be. But yet we don't have to because those three things are intuitive to every human being. But the one thing that's missing is the need to develop the metacognitive, the problem solving, the creative thinking skills that our children really need to do exactly what you were talking about. And I think that's why you guys are so important to, to be mentors and coaches and, you know, get involved in having young people come see what you're doing, you know, because you're right. The way it's going now in education has been doing it for the last 200 years, right? I mean, it's not going to radically change, right? But with 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 evangelists like you guys, I'm telling you, we can make a real difference. Hey, Tom, I mean, in the next part of our episode, I do want to raise this whole issue around culture and equity again, because the one thing that I think is missing is solutions to deal with this whole equity thing. So perhaps you can share some thoughts on that in our next episode. And so our next episode is exactly what we'd like to do is invite you back to talk about those items. For now, we're going to wrap. This has been Disrupt Ed with my co-host, Dr. Caesar. And you were fantastic, Tom. I, you know, Absolutely. I, I could you all day, man. <laughs> this has been very riveting. Remember, our audience is interested in the disruptors, the determined do-gooders out there who the are people who are getting shit done. And they're getting <laughs> stuff done. That's right. So join us again for another episode and look out for the next episode when we bring Tom back to talk about equity in manufacturing and in this global industrial revolution. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.